everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Are You Kidding Me? I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Hello, Naomi. This is Ian Rowe, also a senior fellow at AEI. And today we are very excited to be joined by Melissa Kearney. Uh, she is the author of a new book called The Two-Parent Privilege, How Americans Stopped Getting Married and Started Falling Behind. Thanks for joining us, Melissa. Thanks so much for having me. So we wanted to start today by just asking you a little bit about uh, why you wrote this book. Um, what what sort of came upon you as an economist to go down this road, um, which I gather has been a little bit difficult for you. Um, yeah, tell, tell us what <laughs> yeah. prompted this. No, it's true. I usually prefer to talk about or feel more comfortable talking about uh, more, you know, clearly economic policy levers to advancing economic mobility and addressing the wide inequality we have in the United States. But the way I came to this, um, and I realized that both of you were, have been there for a long time, the way I came to this was just realizing that we can't keep talking about inequality and threats to social mobility in the US without being honest and very, very direct about the fact that the class gap and the racial ethnic gaps in family structure in the US are a key driver of ongoing gaps in kids' outcomes and opportunities and ultimately their trajectories in life. And so it was really a matter of being at so many policy-focused conversations for the past 10 years, if not more, where the folks in my usual crowd, econ policy wonky types, talk about the safety net and the need to improve schools. And I felt like the glaring issue of family structure was always giving short shrift, if mentioned at all. And so I felt like it was time to sort of put my thoughts on how that all relates to inequality, kids' outcomes, and mobility in the U.S. into one place. I mean, what's interesting, I mean, to that point, you know, I remember a few years ago, you know, Raj Chetty's uh, group did an amazing analysis um, you know, America, the land of opportunity, I think it was called, we really analyzed what were the factors that drove upward mobility. And there were these amazing stories. I think the New York Times even had you know, like the punishing reach of racism on black boys because it showed that upward mobility, like every other category, every other um, race, you know, if you if you were born in a certain category, you typically had ways to move up but but for black boys the 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 language was you're doomed if you started in a higher level you went down but there was this small little asterisk that said well actually when black boys had fathers in the home or a concentrated concentration of of active fathers in the community then they had very high rates of upward mobility and yet that point about fathers family structure in my view was 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 it was so important and yet so immersed unless you were yeah. actually trying. <laughs> yeah, why does that happen the really important findings about family structure at a neighborhood level that keeps showing up in a lot of these papers that come out of the opportunity insights lab run by chetty honestly Ian, that's those that's one of the reasons i felt like i had to write this book and interestingly um it was in it was their first paper, the first uh, paper that came out of all of that IRS data work. I think at the time it was called the Equality of Opportunity Lab or something. But but Chetty presented that initial paper at an event um, at AEI 
and it was talking about the geography of mobility across the U.S. So I was invited to discuss the paper and exactly to your point, this is actually earlier than the Black Boys paper, which I will mention, but just on the geography, he gave his talk and then I got up and put up the figure four from their paper and was like, this figure took my breath away. As an economist, I took it as a real challenge because the most highly correlated factor with upward mobility at a neighborhood level was the share of two-parent households in that neighborhood. And I just remember very clearly admitting that this was really challenging to me as an economist because we don't really know how to change family structure. But if you looked at their correlates and the rankings of their correlates, things like EITC exposure, college tuition, access to college, those things that, again, in my circle of economic policy folks, we talk a lot about, those were not nearly as highly correlated. And so, I mean, it's interesting you went right there because that paper really did wind up really setting me on the path of ultimately writing this book. So so there was that paper. And then a few years ago is the paper you're mentioning about the importance of father presence to the upward mobility of Black boys, again, at a neighborhood level. So this was yet another paper coming out of that lab using millions of records and kids in the U.S. showing that the neighborhood factor most highly predictive of a lower gap in adulthood between Black and white men's earnings was the fatherhood presence in the neighborhood. And so again, I was like, oh my goodness, here we are seeing the importance of family structure yet again. Um, And so, yeah, all of that contributes to why I am so convinced at this point that family structure needs to be at the top of our policy agenda on helping kids and families and addressing inequality in this country. Well, you're you're obviously playing our tune, Melissa. Um, so, but and, and we and we know you're an economist. So this is there's like an NPR show called Wait Wait Don't Tell Me. It's called Not My Job or something like that. But and we know you're not a psychologist. But we would wonder if you'd like to speculate on why it is that these results that you're talking about seem to always get buried. Um, what it is about um, talking about family structure mm. that seems to be so taboo, um, particularly in certain circles. Yeah, yes. Okay. And that was a nice way to ask it because I know you both are like, we talk about this all the time. So why are you guys late to the party? So here's what I think. I, I mean, there's a few reasons. As you both know, no doubt, in social science, this has become a bit of the third rail. And I think a lot of that goes back to what happened after Moynihan's 1965 report on the state of the Black family in America when he called attention to this issue and very clearly and explicitly stated that there's a problem with the high share of single mother households. And at that time, it was the urban Black community. And at that time, it was about 25%. Now we're talking about yeah, 23.6%. Yeah. Yeah. And now, and now it's closer to 70% of Black kids in the U.S. live with a single mom. Um, but that became a very intense conversation preceded my time in the social sciences but you know there was a history of this of being accused of racism if you brought this up then fast forward to the 80s which you know again i was not yet producing social science papers but i started studying this stuff in the 90s and what happened in the 80s and 90s was all very current at the time 
And there was an unfortunate characterization of people who wanted to focus on issues of family structure as blaming the victim, blaming single moms. And, and I think there were some really unfortunate characterizations of welfare queens and things that did come across like blaming the victim or blaming the single moms. And so yet again, in my sort of view of all this, it became really difficult to talk about without feeling like you were going to be accused of, of blaming single moms, even if that was the very group that sort of empathetically you might be calling attention to needs more support and, and needs to figure it out. So part of what I'm trying to accomplish in this book is to move the conversation forward in a way that is data-driven, evidence-based, not mired in culture wars. I hope it comes across in my book, not in any sort of condescending way, but in a in a very real way. I'm writing this from the perspective of empathy towards the parents, both the moms and dads. And I think part of the reason I felt so committed to taking on this project was, yes, the social science evidence to me is extraordinarily clear, but also as a mom of three kids, I can't imagine having to do this by myself. And so, yeah. you know, that's, there's a lot of reasons why people aren't comfortable talking about it. It's funny now when I talk to younger scholars or journalists who are less sort of familiar with the culture wars around this issue from the 90s, 80s, 70s, they're like, oh, are you worried it makes you sound Republican? Is that why you don't want to talk about it? I'm like, that's sort of the least of my worries at this point. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting you bring up Moynihan, because I think you're right. Literally, even the term blame the victim came from some of the initial criticisms of his report in the 60s. But do you think it perversely helps that, as you said, the non-marital birth rate back then for the Black community was 23.6%, now it's 70 but now it's also more than 30% in the white community or around that um, order of magnitude, right? Do you think it actually helps that we can say this is a universal issue, right? So if you're looking at white working class or other communities, how does that shift hopefully help make it easier for you to make the case that you're trying to now? It's a multiracial issue. It's a multiracial issue. And really now there's a very strong education class element to it. So among whites, among blacks, among Hispanics, you see that the kids whose moms have college degrees, four-year college degrees, are substantially more likely to be living in married parent homes. Even among kids whose moms identify in the census as black, 60% of kids whose moms have a black moms who have a four-year college degree live in married parent homes, which is still quite low compared to whites and Asians, but it's twice as high as the share of kids who's who live with black moms without a college degree. And so it's really this education gap is incredibly uh, pronounced now that has emerged over the past 40 years. So while there are still differences between race and ethnic groups, there's really this large college gap, which makes this something that everyone who is concerned about equity or inequality and opportunity should really be concerned about. I mean, this, this idea that the kids born, kids in this country born to college-educated parents are so much more likely to grow up with the benefits of a two-parent home and all of the resource advantages that come with that. If we don't break this cycle, this is going to be a key factor perpetuating advantage and disadvantage across the generations. 
One of the factors that I wonder if you think is present, because you didn't mention, um, you know, there was the blame the victim problem, there was the racism problem. I mean, there is also this sense, you know, among the educated classes, why they sort of um, uh, walk the walk, but don't talk the talk in terms of marriage is this sort of whole culture of non-judgmentalism. Yeah. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to tell you, you know, that you should get married. I don't want to tell you how to live your life. And there's no, um, you know, there's, there's nothing that says one, one way of, uh, of leading your personal life is any better than any other yeah. way, which is obviously very pervasive in academia. I wonder what, how much you think that was a factor too in sort of preventing, um, you know, folks in the academy from talking about this issue? I, I think you see, I mean, I've looked to try and publish some of my work in some of these journals outside economics. <laughs> and when you go on websites for from other disciplines in the social sciences outside economics, there's explicit language about, you know, we don't want to prioritize one family structure or not. And I'm staring at the data and I'm like, we don't have to do anything, okay? Like the data is, unbelievably clear here that kids from two-parent homes have an advantage. And so I, I mean, I'll be really frank here. I think it's a dereliction of our duty as social scientists or academics or professors to pretend that kids aren't at a disadvantage if they grow up in a single parent home. It's dishonest, even if it comes from a well-intentioned place. I think what's a more reasonable position or one I have a little bit more patience or sympathy for is the view of, well, there are real reasons why people aren't getting married. And so it's not helpful to just say more people should be raising their kids in two-parent homes. But I'm very clear throughout the entire book that my goal here is to surface and have us all collectively you know, commit to understanding more what are the barriers. What are the barriers? I mean, 40% of kids in the U.S. now are born to unmarried parents. My view of this is probably some of those parents are ambivalent about getting married. There might even be some optimism about whether they could pull this off as unmarried, non-resident co-parents. And I think the data is very clear that their kid will be well-served. If they're not, if there aren't real barriers like abuse or harm, it's better for the kids, for the parents to give this a go, right? Try to set up a two-parent home and commit to being together and creating a stable, resource-rich environment for your child. But beyond that, there are clearly a lot of unmarried adults who have a child together, who say they want to co-parent, who say they'd like to have a healthy relationship and have real barriers to achieving it. And so it's, it's, too, you know, it's too flip for any of us as observers to say, just make different choices without saying, okay, what kind of programs community government can help? Like how, where, why are there, why is intimate partner violence so prevalent? And if that's the case, we should be throwing tons of resources at preventing that and educating people about that. So many men are grappling with unstable employment or criminal backgrounds that keep them from being stably employed or even going to their kids' schools. What kind of policy changes, programmatic interventions can we come up with to help those kinds of vulnerable families? And so, I, I mean, I think that's, to the extent that the reluctance is less about, well, we don't want to admit that this is actually a, disadvantage, you know, a, dis, a disadvantageous situation for kids and parents alike, but we just don't know what to do about it. I think what we need to be doing is figuring out what to do about it and how to help vulnerable families.
100%. I mean, you know, first of all, I'm very thankful that you have put yourself out there to write this book. I think your voice in this um, just has a different resonance. So thank you for taking the arrows. I but I'm sure you're. That. Thanks, Ian. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's interesting. I've been taking arrows on this point, you know, from all sorts of sides. And in education, though, because I'm curious, because the data is overwhelming, but in sectors like education, like yesterday, you know, two days ago, more data came out around schools in Baltimore and the fact that, you know, literally, you know, two digit numbers of schools have literally zero kids um, yeah, passing either the re- the math or English language arts exams. And, you know, in this particular story that came out a couple of days ago, you know, wh- you know, what's the cause? And they were looking at poverty. They were looking at crime. So there's all this data. But in education, there is no data that shows outcomes by family structure. Yeah. So how do we force family structure to be yeah. elevated as a dis- discussion point? Well, I mean, you are such a champion of this point, And I will, you know, I am on your bandwagon on this. This is, I think, part of the counterproductive reluctance to acknowledge family structure as a really important driver of kids' outcomes. And so, you know, whatever I could do to help you push this movement of this needs to be one of the things we're collecting about education data. When we report kids' outcomes in schools and their test scores by race and then an ethnicity and you know, measures of sort of income proxies at schools, we also need to be collecting it and reporting it by family structure. And this is something- well, be, be where, careful yeah. what you wish for, Ian, because, uh, you know, once this this becomes sort of another factor that schools will announce they can't be held responsible for. And so when your kids turn out to not learn anything, they'll say, well, now it was poverty, racism, and family structure, and teachers don't have any control over any of that. So, But I, but I, I do think there's something to be said for the fact that, like, our response to all of this, to the tremendous rise in kids' being raised outside a married parent home is to basically just put it on the schools. I'm all for schools hiring more counselors. I'm all for teachers being trauma-informed and recognizing that their kids might be bringing to school deficits from home. But at some point, we have to think, okay, teachers and the classrooms need to be able to teach students And where is the emphasis on improving home life, right? We can't just keep sending more and more kids to schools, bringing all sorts of resource deficiencies from home and the sort of baggage that that comes with. They show up at school less ready to learn. At some point, we are, I think, tasking a lot of our teachers or schools with really difficult tasks that take away from their expertise and the main functions that schools are supposed to provide. I don't mean to be excusing schools, but you know, for we've been talking about improving failing schools for 50 years and we keep throwing a lot of monies and ideas and innovations at that problem without a commensurate focus on, hey, wait a second, kids only spend 10% of their childhood in a school what's going on in their homes and and what can we again as communities as the public commit to doing to help improving family situation and home environments well let's let's talk about that for a minute because at the end of your book you talk about some solutions that you see toward this problem but 
earlier we sort of you sort of mentioned like maybe we we still don't really know what the levers are to press yeah. here that will improve uh the home life of these kids or that will encourage you know more young people to think about marriage um even if they don't see it all around them what are you proposing and how skeptical are you even of the solutions that are being kind of thrown out there points in the success sequence <laughs> yes. No. I mean, Ian, if you could go through the country and convince every kid one by one to commit to the success sequence, you know, that will get us a long way there. So I'm all for that. Oh, um, but I will leave that with you. This is such an academic thing to do. Let me preface my answer with the caveat, which is I have read so many books where I'm like, great, seven chapters, eight chapters. You convinced me a problem and then you give me one chapter and what to do about it. And then here I am writing a book with that exact structure. I'm more convinced of what the problem is than I am convinced that I can lay out a path forward. Having said that, here's what I think. We need to both improve the economic circumstances of men in particular in this country without a college degree, because I do think the erosion of those men's economic position, both in an absolute sense and relative to women, has been a major contributor over the past 40 years to the decline in marriage outside the college-educated class. Like the economic value proposition of marriage, again, for adults without a college degree, has been eroded by the fact that many of these men are no longer viewed by their partners or view themselves as as, as being able to commit to being a breadwinner for their family or a stable financial provider. So I do think that that is a necessary, albeit not sufficient condition for sort of reversing some of these trends. Hand in hand with that, and here's where as an economist, I'm like, okay, I admit it. It's not just economics. We really do need to reform a social norm of two-parent households for kids. That, that convention is far too broken again, outside the college-educated class, which is contributing to some of these gaps. And so all of the ways that we promote social conventions, which falls farther and farther from the economist policy toolkit, but I think we need to deploy all of those. You know, Ian's teaching the success sequence in schools, but messages from local and national leaders, as well as celebrities, as well as the messages that are organically received through media, all of those matter. And we have social science evidence saying that those matter. So I'm, I'm all for that. And then, you know, I can't help myself, but think that there's a role here for evidence-based programs and policies. So one obvious low-hanging fruit is to, when it comes to policy reforms, is to remove the marriage disincentives that are found throughout our tax and transfer programs. And I, I don't think that will dramatically change things, but once we recognize that marriage is a social good, married parents are good for kids, we should be explicit about not disincentivizing that household structure in the way we design our tax and transfer programs. But I do think the same way that there is a lot of public funding for programs aimed at early childhood education, at college completion, um, at all sorts of interventions in the health sphere. And then there's a lot of public money available for researching what works in those fields. We should have family structure and promoting safe and stable families 
as a policy goal, and then the money should follow, right? So just one very key point on this, the Bush administration tried some healthy marriage initiatives in the early 2000s. They were, you know, ineffective at increasing rates of marriage. And then we basically stopped. <laughs> then, like, the funding didn't grow. You know, it morphed into strengthening families, which I think is a very good thing. And so now a lot of those programs take more of an emphasis of responsible fatherhood or healthy relationships rather than marriage promotion per se. But there's very little funding available. It's 1% of the administration and children and families budget. 1% compared to 15% on foster care. So we recognize that vulnerable families need help, but we spend way more money taking kids out of families than we do in a public sense on then designing, implementing, and studying programs that might help strengthen programs of families. That needs to change. It's interesting you brought up foster care because I think there is so much emphasis in that world now on quote unquote prevention. Um, But a lot of that prevention is, you know, after a child has already been abused or something like that. And, you know, if we said actually, you know, there's uh, lots of evidence to believe that children in, you know, married two parent families are at much less risk of abuse or neglect than children um, in other family structures, then we should put all those under the prevention dollars. That's right. That's right. Um, you don't uh, talk about it that much, but what do you think about, so obviously cultural norm around marriage, what about open infant adoption oh, that's as another really... pathway to to form strong families? Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I mean, you know, I, I'm not an expert in adoption policy. My initial reaction to the question is I would like to see more parents well-equipped to take care of their children. <laughs> Then Ian's absolutely. trying to get you canceled for real. Yeah, no, I mean, no, no, I, you know, I just Ow. feel really, I'm like, oh, I mean that, you know, the same way I feel about foster care. It's like, that's a plan. That's a plan B. That's a plan B. So I think it's worth setting out. What's our ideal here? My ideal is more parents are equipped and committed to taking care of their kids. Um, so that would be the first. I, I The other thing I don't do conspicuously is make specific recommendations about how to change divorce law or child support policy. And the reason why is because it's not clear to me how to best reform those given the unintentional consequences some of the reforms have. So for example, you know, it feels easy to say, wait a second, only you know, a quarter of unpartnered mothers have any child support dollars coming into their house. Of course, we need to beef up enforcement of child support. Like what's going on there? And then when you look at some of the studies that say, okay, what happens when child support, child support enforcement is beefed up? Well, it turns out that marriage among parents goes down. Why? Because having a dad in the house or just getting a check from him for some is a substitute. And so as soon as I start reading the studies of what happens when you reform or change divorce laws or child support laws, it's clear why it's so complicated to get that right. In terms of, um, I mean, one of the, the things you sort of talk about in the book is the question of how these different financial incentives, including welfare reform, um, sort of affected the trend that we've seen up until now. And 
you also sort of suggest that it's not so easy to reverse that. I mean, that there may sort of be these social structures now may be so um, kind of ingrained in certain, you know, areas and certain neighborhoods that it's hard to sort of find the levers to press, um, even if we could have found them 40 years ago. So does that make you sort of more skeptical about using either public or private dollars to sort of fix these problems? Like how much of this is economics when there's such a culture of single parenthood is is totally fine and uh you know and and in many cases the prevailing choice i think there's a lot for the public to do here in terms of strengthening programs and committing to funding research so that we have an evidence based on the kinds of programs that can help vulnerable families but i think the social changes are likely not going to come from government I think the social changes has to come from a more widespread recognition among those in a position of influence, right? Whether that's the people who are scripting all the TV shows and movies that are clearly celebrating not just alternative family arrangements. I don't mean like, oh, same-sex parents. I mean, you know, the kinds of kids my shows watch, my kids watch where I'm like, oh yeah, well, she had a baby with her boyfriend, but then she married his brother or now she's living with his brother. And like the way these TV shows portray families, I just think is a bit divorced from the reality of the complications of raising kids in complicated family situations. Well, that um, used to be sort of like a soap opera plot and it was scandalous. And yeah, now, no, now it's, it's like, like oh, now it's, it's like run of the mill on Disney Plus, right? Um, now it's Kim so, Kardashian, right? Yeah, no, exactly. Like, I think the government can't do anything about the way celebrities live their lives, but let's be honest that it matters and those things have influence and, and what celebrities say or do has influence. So I think that's out of the government sphere, but is part of the story. Having said that, Let's go back to the fact that college-educated adults in this country are still, just based on the numbers, committed to raising their kids in two-parent parent homes. So the decline in the share of kids whose moms have a college degree who live with married parents over 40 years has only fallen from 90% to 84%. And that's actually an exceptionally small reduction. I mean, compared to high school-educated moms where it fell from 80 to you know, 80 to 60, right? Or 83 to 60, right? So a huge decrease outside the college educated class. College educated adults are far more common now. It's a larger share of the population. It's more heterogeneous. It's less select and elite than 40 years ago. And yet still that class of adults is committed and somehow able to achieve two-parent households for their kids. So it's it's not like there's been a widespread rejection of marriage in the US. It's widespread outside the most advantaged class. And so in some sense, that makes me a little bit optimistic because then it's like, no, 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 the whole culture hasn't moved away from it. And by the way, this also, to my mind, is a reason why one line I get, which is, well, this is all, you know, this is what was going to happen once you had feminism, then women weren't going to want men anymore. Well, the most economically successful women in society are still marrying the fathers of their children in you know really large numbers. And so I don't think the married parent family is inconsistent with modern feminism or modern 
social norms writ large. And so this is this this makes me a little bit optimistic <laughs> that maybe we could reestablish a norm and productively break down the barriers that too many adults outside the college educated class are feeling like keep them from achieving a healthy, stable, married parent situation for them and their kids. Yeah. Well, I guess my final question is, you know, given that, you know, in writing this book, the reaction has been quite extraordinary to observe, you know, if you've got of the college edu educated class, more progressives, who, by the way, many of whom are criticizing you are enjoying the benefits of married um, yeah. parents with their children. So they're not, uh, they're not uh, preaching what they practice and hence, but they're still mad at you for writing this book. <laughs> but how do you get that group of people together with people like Naomi and I, who've been talking about the, these issues and who genuinely want to solve a problem here. Like how do, how does your book become a catalyst to bring typically warring factions together? Mm -hmm. That's sort of my aim and my goal. And I don't think I went into it naively thinking it would be easy, but a lot of the negative reactions I've gotten were basically in the first 48 hours clearly from people who hadn't read the book or engaged with the content, all of whom said things that I completely anticipated and even wrote in the preface, this is not what I'm saying, right? So like the, the highly <laughs> predictive nature of the objections to the book in some sense was quite bolstering because I was like, oh, okay, there's nothing out there that I sort of missed. You're just saying we shouldn't judge moms from making these decisions. Check. I am with you. We shouldn't judge moms. I don't think there's a lot of single moms who had these wonderful partners who said, hey, look, I'm stably employed. I'm emotionally supportive. I would be a great partner. And all of these women are saying, no, no, thanks. Want to do this by myself. Right. So I am acknowledging throughout the book that what we have to do is figure out why so many people are not marrying the adults with whom they've had kids and work to address those barriers. So that was an easy one or a highly anticipated one. The other common reaction I get or that I've gotten to the book is the problem is not that there's a lack of two parent families. The problem is that we don't do enough in this country to support single mothers. And this too is was readily predictable as a reaction. And I very explicitly in the book reject the idea that we are just going to resign ourselves to two-parent households and resident dads being something that only kids who are born to college-educated parents get to enjoy in high numbers. I mean, that is just defeatist and frankly pretty obnoxious, right? To say, yes, yes, I am a college-educated dad and I do a ton for my kid. Not only do I bring a ton of income into the house, but I play baseball with him or I drive my daughter to her dance recitals. But these other kids whose parents don't have college degrees, well, those dads would probably be crappy dads anyway. So let's just expand the child tax credit. That is yep. so obnoxious. <laughs> um, so, you know, I'm not willing to say that that's good enough for those kids who are born outside the college educated class. Yes, we should do more to shore up the safety net. But we should also acknowledge that a dad in the house, which millions of kids are missing out on, does more than really any government program or again, school counselor can really hope to achieve for that kid. And so I'd like us to aim higher 
for the millions of kids yep. in this country who aren't growing up with the benefit of two parents in their household. Maybe we should they hold an, an event together and invite all these people under yeah, one roof let's to have do, a Let's do it. And and by the way, let's assume that everybody is well-intentioned, right? I, exactly. I, let's assume everybody's exactly. well-intentioned. Let's assume everybody really does want the best for kids and parents in this country. And then let's be honest about the data and put our heads together. Well, that seems like a great note to end on. Um, so yes. thank you so much, Melissa, for joining us. This has been another episode of Are You Kidding Me? You can get episodes of this podcast on the AEI podcast channel or wherever you get your podcasts. So with that, I am Naomi Schaefer Riley. And I'm Ian Rowe, and I'll be calling you with dates for us to organize this event. <laughs> okay, great. Thanks for having me.